As we go through our study in the book of Proverbs this year, today we're in chapter 17, and and it's really an interesting situation. The the Proverbs that we're hitting right now, they're just one after the other, and and sometimes they can be scattered in their focus and, and what they're looking at. And that, to a certain extent, is true of ours today. But hopefully as we go through these uh, seven verses, we're going to see that they do, in a way, build off of each other and, and focus on a question and a matter of the heart. How are we living and, and what is going on in our hearts? Which a lot of Proverbs, I think you've probably noticed by now, a lot of it has to do with what we say, what's going on in our hearts, how we treat people, how we act. It's the wisdom of God is for living. And uh, I think that's one of the things, if, if, if I could try to convince our, our society today, and, and one of the, the downsides of Christianity probably in the past is at one time a lot of Christians were so heavenly minded they were no earthly good. And when you think about what is, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ for and what is, what is he doing? Yes, it is to be with God for eternity. But there's more to it than that, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for our lives today. How we live, how we treat one another should be informed by the grace we have received. Hopefully by having the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will grow in our ability to treat one another well and kindly and graciously. But God's wisdom isn't just for how do I get into heaven. It's how do I live today? How do I honor the people around me with how I treat them? How do I live uh, to be the best person I can be? And Proverbs helps us get there quite a bit, although in in some of our cases, and I'll I'll just put my hand up for this, it, it sure shows us how we shouldn't live. You know, and you can see yourself sometimes too much in these Proverbs. And then it just drives us back to the cross, drives us back to Jesus and our need for His grace and His forgiveness and his righteousness. So we're, we're going to look, and, and what I'm going to do to start us off is just we're going to walk through this passage so that we can get these Proverbs together as they are, uh, as they are written, and then we're going to piece them together. They don't go together necessarily one behind the other, but almost like an inclusio where the first one and the last one go together. So let's look at this together, shall we? In Proverbs 17, verses 2 through 8. We read, a servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. Excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lying lips to a prince. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. 
like I said, these kind of have a starting feeling of just being scattershot. What does one have to do with the other sometimes? You know, you, you go from talking about grandchildren and fathers to the speech of a fool and lying lips among a prince. And then that, that last one that just, you know, are we, are we encouraging bribery? Is, is that what Solomon's getting at, that, that you really should bribe people because that way you'll get ahead? What are these Proverbs getting at? Where, where is he headed? And, and I, I think the, the start isn't necessarily in verse 2. But truly, the, the start of our focus needs to be in verse 3 uh, with this, this statement about the Lord, about Yahweh. The, the refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold. The, the, the refining pot is literally the, the crucible. You know, you, you heat it up and all the impurities, as it melts and separates, the impurities will come out of the silver and you can scoop them out and then what is left is pure silver. And, and similarly, you put gold in the furnace. You're able to heat it up so you can mold it and change it and take out, again, those impurities. And so we have the, the refining pot is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. And, and, and the way it's structured, the Lord is like the refining pot or the furnace. He is the one. Because when you put uh, that word tests, means not just to, you know, to try somebody, but also it has the idea of proving. You know, when you, when you take a test... You prove how good you are in that subject. If you take a test and you get a 90, you have proven that you know a good, healthy chunk of information, whether that's for uh, school or if that's for uh, a license for you know, your, your industry that you're in. Tests prove. They don't just try us. They don't just challenge us. But they're a way of proving where we are. And the same is true about what the Lord does with our hearts. That, that just as you will put silver into the, the, the word the crucible, there it goes, like the word just went, as you put silver in the crucible and, and, and refine it, you're able to, to get stuff out of it, the, the nasty stuff out that you don't want, but also you're able to prove how good that silver is. And the same is true for what God does with our hearts. He's not concerned with other areas. He is concerned about our hearts. And he's not necessarily the one that turns up the heat on us, but he is the one who is using and working in our hearts. First, to test. To see, okay, what's in here? And hopefully in some way to take away the impurities. To clean us up as he takes us through life experiences, as he takes us through our lives and, and different challenges that we come through. But also, there's an element of formation. That when you, when you take silver and you refine it, you're refining it for a purpose. When you take gold and you put it in the furnace, it's so that you can change it and structure it and shape it to something beautiful or useful or valuable. So when God tests our hearts, He's not just saying, okay, let me see what you got. But there's also an element there where He, he is refining us and shaping us to be more like Him. To be more like what He has designed us to be to make us His children. 
And, and so when we think about these verses that we're looking at today in a matter of the heart, as we look at these different characteristics of people, uh, the first thing I want us to be thinking about as we go through it is that God proves and forms our hearts. He, he proves them, shows what they really are made of. You know, as we come to Scripture and as we look at what God's Word says, there are things that our hearts agree with that we say, yes, I'm living that out. I am doing all right in that area. I'm good. And there are other areas where we read and we think, ugh, I am falling short in this area. As we interact with, as we follow God, as we uh, seek Him, as we seek His Word and we are challenged by it and changed by it, He proves our hearts. Where they're good, where they're bad. He proves what's in them. More than anything else. If we are left to our own devices, we can say, oh, I'm good, I'm great, I'm fine. But when the Lord tests us, we find, oh, I know what's really in my heart. He proves what's there. But He doesn't leave us there. He he also forms our hearts. He changes us. He helps us to grow more and more like His Son, Jesus. And so as we're, as we're looking at this, it's not from the first verse, but from this second verse, verse 3, that we see is the Lord working in our lives. Now, the verse prior, as we think about our lives and the start we get, Verse 2 says, a servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. And, and what he is saying in this is the idea that where you start in life is not the issue. That character and competence can overcome a lack of a birthright. But also, a, a son who acts shamefully. This is the idea of a son who is wealthy, who is... Uh, with the inheritance. You know, the, the son whose father would have servants. Because the servant who acts wisely will rule over the son who acts shamefully. The, the picture, the image that it is creating is a household where you've got a wise and good servant. Literally a prudent. They think about the future. They think about what needs to be done. A prudent servant or a servant who acts prudently will rule over will have authority over a son who acts shamefully. They waste their life. They waste their inheritance. They cause shame for their father. And, and not only that, will he rule over him, and, and where you'll get to the point where the father won't trust the son, but he trusts the servant more, and so he elevates the servant to the point where he will actually share in the inheritance among brothers. That inheritance that should have been the shameful son is going to go to that servant because he has done such a good job. The idea, whether this is something that happens literally, and I think if we look in the world, we think, no, you know, shameful sons, they seem to get the inheritance no matter what. But this is talking about God's values. And we do see this in God's way of working, that the, the servant does inherit with the sons. He shares the inheritance among brothers. The idea, though, is that your station in life, how you begin, if you're, if you're from humble circumstances, that doesn't dictate how you have to live your life. 
that if you live your and, and, and the contrast is there as well. No matter how nice your station at the beginning, if you don't live wisely, if you don't live equal to your station, you're going to bring yourself down. It doesn't matter what your birthright was. You'll be known to be a shameful son. There's a similar idea in the very last verse. In verse 8, a bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Now, a bribe can also mean a gift. And, and truly, what is a bribe? It's a gift. It's a gift given to obtain something. We, we have no trouble bribing at times. In fact, some cultures you, you have to bribe. It's rude not to. Uh, in America, if, if you're trying to raise money, for an, an organization or, or something you've got going on. You know, we've got the uh, Pregnancy Resource Center here in, in Eagle Mountain area, and they need outside money. They are not charging their customers for their services. So they have to raise their income through a charitable donation. So they go out and they ask people, would you support us? That is a natural and normal thing done in America and Western society. You go and you ask for things. Uh, it doesn't work that way all around the world. I had one of my professors when I was in seminary, he was our uh, vice president of development. And I always I love the words we come up with things. It meant he was the guy that raised money. It was his spiritual gift. He did not like, do you like getting envelopes that ask you constantly for money? Especially from alma maters. If you, you know, if you went to school, do you love, you know, you think, hey, I already paid. I paid out the wazoo while I was going there. I don't need to pay you anymore. He didn't like those things. He didn't do those kind of things. But he took our seminary president once on a trip to Asia. And he explained, don't ask for money, but bring a gift. That would be a bribe, you might think. But no, it wasn't. It was just a gift. You give a gift, and you talk about what your school does, and you leave. You never ask for money. And he explained what happens is if the person we were talking to liked what we said and wants to participate and help us, they'll send a gift back. And you will know by the quality of the gift that comes back whether or not they are excited or they're just being polite. And that's the way the society works. You don't ask outright, you give a gift. And if they like what you're doing and they like what you're saying, if they want to participate, they'll give you a gift. And, and that's a normal way of thinking for some people. And so when we read, a bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. This doesn't necessarily mean nefarious use of bribes. This doesn't mean the, I'm going to give this senator a certain amount of money or I'm going to take him on a hunting trip so that he passes this thing so I get that thing. We see this happening all the time, right? It, and it's, we don't think that's the right way of doing business. Because, as we'll see in a later proverb, uh, a bribe can subvert the courts. It can sub subvert uh, justice. But here the idea is a, a gift. A gift is a charm. It's, it's like a, a, a stone jewel in the sight of its owner. It's, it's something that's blessed. And, and wherever he turns, he prospers. But the word doesn't really mean, the, the, the word for prospers there here's where we kind of get in a little bit of an inclusio. It's the same word, which means an inclusion, like everything inside is included. It's the same word for the servant who acts wisely. It's prudent. Everywhere he turns, 
he's prudent doesn't quite work, right? And that's why we get the translation, he prospers. He's working towards the future. He is going to do well because he starts with a gift. He's starting off with the gift that he gives. And wherever he turns, he prospers. He's going to be doing better in the future. Now, you could take this and and say, yes, bribery is a negative and it's not a good thing. But the the focus here is, along with the idea in verse 2, that where you begin isn't what matters. How you act. How you treat people. A person who shows up and has a gift is going to get farther ahead. A person who acts wisely, is prudent, even if he's a servant, he is going to get ahead. But a, a son who acts shamefully is going to bring himself down. A son who acts shamefully is going to bring his father down. A son who acts shamefully is going to find himself being ruled over by a servant. And, and so the overwhelming focus is that your class, how you begin, whether you're upper class, middle class, uh, lower income, it doesn't matter so much as how you act and how you live. Your character. Character is more important than class. Character and how we, we comport ourselves is more important than our name, what school you went to, what neighborhood you live in. All of those things. And if we think about our country and our culture, those kind of things seem to matter to people, right? Your, your zip code, your address, your name, where you went to school. For some people, those things matter a lot. But Solomon's wisdom says, no, those things, they don't work for you unless you also act prudently. He's not saying that you can't be upper class and act prudently and get farther ahead. He's not saying anything against that. It's just, it's the contrast idea. It doesn't matter if you start as a servant. If you act prudently, if you act wisely, you'll be honored. You'll be respected. You'll be seen. You'll be noticed. And in a similar way, if you're a son and you've had everything handed to you and you take that and you act shamefully, if all you do is bring shame to that, you're going to be noticed, but not in a good way. Character is more important than class. Character goes along with the heart. You know, God's testing our heart. When we're tested, that's when we show our character. Who are we? That's more important than our class and where we came from. Similar idea of character continues with uh, verses 4 and 7. In 4 we read, An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Literally to a, a creative, but not in a good way, tongue. You know? What this verse is saying is, is that a person who is evil is going to listen to people who speak wicked things. And a, a person who lies, who, who is a liar, they're going to pay attention. Literally give an ear. Not just they're going to hear it, but they're going to listen to it. They're going to give heed to a destructive tongue. Partly the idea is that those who, who are, are dishonest and lie, they're going to listen to the lies about other people. And when, you, when you're willing to listen to gossip, when you're willing to listen to people tearing other people down, that, that shows a lack of care for the person who's being talked about. 
It, it shows even potentially open mouths towards that person. That I am excited to hear bad things about that person. I want to hear bad things about that person. I want to see that person torn down so that I might be elevated. But it's, it's really more than that when you put these together. It's the idea that a person who is evil, who does evil things, is going to listen to those that will speak wickedness, that will encourage wickedness. A, a, a liar is going to listen to and heed and give attention and maybe even prefer to hear those things spoken with a destructive tongue. It's not in there. It's not stated overtly, but the, the reverse is the same and is true. That a person who's honest is going to listen to people who speak truth. A, a person who believes in doing good things isn't going to listen to wicked lips, but they're going to listen to honest lips and righteous lips. And so if you ever wonder why some people listen to, to certain speakers, why some people will go along with certain schemes, that's part of what's going on. If you're a, a, an honest person, you don't like to hear dishonesty. You don't like to hear the lies. You want to speak and deal in truth. But if, if your character is such that you lie, if your character is such that you'll say whatever you need to say to get ahead, well, you're going to encourage that and breed that around you. And other people that are that way are going to, you're going to swim in the same waters. You're going to be comfortable with one another because we operate the same way. We all lie to one another. We're okay with that as long as we're getting ahead. But when you have honest people trying to deal with dishonest people or dishonest people trying to deal with honest people, that, that's where the, the difficulties arise because honest people won't listen to the lies. And evildoers don't want to listen to righteous talk. And liars don't want to listen to creative and constructive speech. They pay attention. They give ear to the destructive. We're told in verse 7, and, and this goes along with the idea of speech, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool. And it's really not a focus on the fool. It's just the idea of if you had a foolish person that spoke you know, really well, that just... It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. In a similar way, and even much less, are lying lips to a prince. The focus is on the lying lips. Just like in verse 4, the focus was on wicked lips and a destructive tongue and a liar. In verse 7, the focus is that, that lying lips are not fitting to a prince. As, as much as we would say, wow, excellent speech doesn't work for a fool. That's not fitting. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right. More so, lying lips should not feel right to a prince. It should not feel right to listen to a prince lie. It, it should feel more um, awkward to us to hear somebody who's an authority lie than it is to hear a fool speak and sound intelligent and put words together well. That's what he's getting at. This whole focus is on on how a person speaks, their, their character, and how they live. If they're a liar, if they're an evildoer, they should not be in charge of things. It is not appropriate, it is not good, it is not healthy to have princes who are liars. Because what happens when you, as we see in verse 4, 
An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to his destructive tongue. So if you have a prince who's a liar, what are they going to listen to? Are they going to listen to truth? Are they going to listen to wisdom? Are they going to listen to righteousness? No, they're going to listen to wicked lips and destructive tongue. I'll let you fill in the blanks as you think about those that are in positions of princehood in our culture today. We don't have kings and princes, but we have those who are in charge, which would be our present day princes. How many of our princes and princesses do we have out there that are not using lying lips? I think part of what's going on here, so he's saying that certain behavior is not fitting for certain positions of authority and responsibility. But it's also, when you think about it, that a person who does evil is going to listen to wicked lips. And a person who is righteous and, and who is truthful is going to listen to righteous things and truthful lips. The idea is that people will live according to their character. A, a person who is a liar is going to live according to that. They are going to honor liars in their lives. They are going to not deal with people who are honest and truthful. They are going to live according to their character. In, in a similar way, a person who is righteous, who, is, who is, uh, speaks truth, they're going to live according to that character. They're not going to go along easily with a lie. They're not going to put up with lies in their midst like a liar would. We live according to our character. The, the little things that we do dictate the larger thing that we live, our lives. And there's a consistency. You can't expect somebody who, who is a liar to make good decisions and, and right decisions for you. They might get lucky once in a while, but overwhelmingly you can't trust them. And that's the point that he's getting at. That as God is testing and forming our hearts, character is more important than our circumstances, it's more important than our class, and, and how we live will be a reflection of that character. We're going to live according to that character in our lives. Now finally, in verses 5 and 6, this is the only time we got two verses there back to back to kind of go together. Verse 5 tells us, He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. Literally, he reproaches, he despises his maker. He who mocks the poor. And we've seen a lot about being a mocker in Proverbs, you know, to, to, to deride, to stammer, to move, make, make with your mouth, to laugh at, to put down those that are poor. To mock them for their struggles, their troubles. The person who does that, that has that heart attitude toward the poor, taunts his maker. God says, this is an offense to me. This is very similar to when Jesus separates in his parable the, the sheep from the goats. And, and the, their treatment of other people was considered their treatment of Jesus. Did they uh, 
clothe the naked? Did they visit those that were in prison? Did they give food to those that were hungry? Did they give drink to those that were thirsty? The sheep are like, when did we ever do that to you? He says, as, as often as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And the goats say, hey, we never saw you hungry. He said, to the, to the extent you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it for me. Well, this isn't something new that Jesus made up. This is something that God is saying back in Proverbs. Those that taunt the poor, or excuse me, that mock the poor taunt their maker. And he who rejoices at calamity, at, at, at people's struggles and their uh, distress and the, their difficulties, a person who rejoices at that will not go unpunished. They might not experience it now. They might not even be able to connect, oh, I'm being, this is, this is punishment for this thing I did over here. They might not make those connections, but they will not go unpunished because they are taunting their maker. They are uh, acting with, as if they despise their God. So you've got to wonder, what does that have to do with grandchildren are the crown of old men? And the glory of sons is their father, is their fathers. The idea here, and, and literally, the children of children, you know, it's grandchildren, what are they? They are the children of your children. And those are the crown of old men. Those are, and crown, you know, that is the seal on their head. Their glory is their children's children. But there was, a, there was a reverse there too. The glory of sons, the, the beauty, literally, of sons is their fathers. Now, what, what Solomon is getting at here is, is the connection we have with our family, with our, our uh, as children, our ancestors, our, the very close ones, you know, just two generations away. But, or that's, that's for the, the, the grandfather, excuse me. And for sons, the, the one right above you. And the idea here is, is that a, a, a person, as you grow up, as you go through life, as you live your life, the crown for you is not just, how are my kids doing? Your kids are doing great, that's great. But how are your kids' kids doing? You know, it's one thing to learn something. I remember hearing about a, a a professor that uh, wanted, he always was offering to his students that he would not require them to take any tests if they would teach what they were learning in class to another person and that person came in and took a test. And he gave them whatever grade that person gave them. And he said, I've never had anybody take me up on this, but if you're able to learn something and then teach somebody else, now you've really learned what you've, that material. If you have obtained the information, but then learned how to communicate it to somebody else so that they have learned the, the information. Now you know this subject. And, and that's kind of what I'm getting at and what I think Solomon is getting at here with, with children's children. Grandchildren are the crown of old men. It's one thing to say, this is our family and this is, this is how I live my life. It's another thing to take your character and impart it upon your children and have them live that way and say, this is the way this family, this clan, 
lives. But it's, it's a whole nother level. When your character and how you live isn't just imparted to your children, but to your children's children. They have passed it on. And that's what he's getting at here. Remember, the, if we go back to verse um, 2 with the, the, the son who acts shamefully, that, that son who acts shamefully is not going to be the crown for that grandfather. Yeah, that, that's not the idea. This is a positive verse, verse 7. Or, excuse me, verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of old men. It's the idea that when you get to the end of your life and you're looking back and you're seeing what you've accomplished, the things that really matter. It's not, oh yeah, I was able to increase sales by 15% that one year and I got a plaque. No. What you really accomplish are, are there any young people who actually show up to your hospital bed? Do they gather around when you're in need and when you're leaving? Do they gather around? That's what matters. And have you passed on who you are and what you value and your character to them? If you do, they're your crown. That's the joy. That Not just that you've passed it on to one generation, but it has been transmitted to another. And the idea, the flip side of this, the glory of sons is their fathers. Think about any kid, any young boy, or young girl for that matter. Where do you get your identity when you're young? How do you know who you are and, more to the point, who you're going to be? You know, when, when I wonder how am I going to be as an old man, I, I don't look around here. No offense. But I, I, I sometimes see my dad's hands in the mirror. You know? I'll, I'll do something and I'll see one of my grandfathers. And when I think about what am I going to look like when I'm old, I can think about my grandfathers and I can yeah, mostly I'm going to stick with my grandfathers because I don't think I'm taking after my dad too much. Uh, and I can say that's who I'm going to be one day. And, and that's the idea that we have here that the glory of sons is their fathers. They look up to their fathers. You know, you can, the, you can be a complete mess. You can be ruining things and your kids, what do they want? They just want a little bit of time. They just want a little bit of time. They just want to be like that adult, that mom or that dad that they're spending time with. The, the glory of sons is their fathers. That's, they say, this is who I'm going to be like someday. This is who I'm going to grow up. This is who I want to emulate. And then, of course, as they grow older, maybe they say, hmm, don't really want to emulate you after all. But the idea is, is that as children, who do we have to say, this is what a man or a woman is supposed to be like. This is who I want to live like. It starts with our parents. And that's what the idea here is, is that the generations are connected. That, and so as we think about our character and how we live our lives and living according to our character, the question is, is what are we imparting to our children and to their children? And also, what are they looking up and idolizing and saying, that's what I want to be like? What are we passing on? And, and I see the connection between verse 5 and verse 6 because uh, truly grandparents are our makers. If grandparents didn't get together and have kids, 
There would never have been parents for us. They are, in a way, our maker, and in a way, we are the maker of our children and our grandchildren. And in the same way that the the one who mocks the poor taunts his maker, it's the idea that he has no respect for God, no respect for the one who gave him life, and no respect for other people that God has given life to. The one who mocks the poor. And when you think about grandchildren, and you think about the poor, that's pretty close. Because grandchildren, when they're young, they've got nothing of their own. They're poor. Everything they rely on is what's been given to them. And it's a terrible thing to mock children, isn't it? They have no control over so much. And you're going to bring on some wrath of some people who are not so poor. And that's the focus there. That's the way these go together. It's is, is treatment of others in relation to God and how He was going to respond. It's treatment of our own family, grandchildren, old men, and sons to fathers. But it has more to that. that he who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. The way we treat people will not go unpunished. It will, it will be rewarded whether in a good way or a bad way. If our character is good and it holds up, then our children will grow up to be, hopefully, Lord willing, like us if we pass it on. And that will be a blessing. It will be the crown of your life to see that, that generation. You know, they, they talk about uh, planting trees, you know, Hope for the future is, is planning is old men planting trees that they will never enjoy the shade from that tree. And that's, to a certain extent, this idea of grandchildren, the crown of old men. It's the idea that you're never going to see the end result. But they're going to keep going. And that's your crown. But... If our character is not good, if we are liars, if we are evildoers, if we listen to those who have destructive tongues, well, you're going to get the results that that you put in for. The children, the grandchildren, what kind of a legacy will be left? What kind of a crown will that be? He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished what our character is and how we live, if we're living for the Lord or if we're living for ourselves, that is going to be displayed because we are going to live up to our character. And we're going to pass it on to our children and they'll pass it on to their children. And whether you're righteous in your behavior or if you taunt your Lord by mocking the poor, if your character is so bad, either way, it's going to bear fruit. And this is the connection to John chapter 15, verse 5. We bear fruit. The question is, is what kind of fruit? Because how we live will bear fruit. If we live by lies, we're going to bear fruit of lies. If we, lie, if we live by evil doing and unrighteousness, we're going to bear fruit in keeping with doing evil. But if we live by the truth, 
if we walk with Christ, as, as he says in chapter 15, verse 5 of John, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Jesus is saying, you're going to bear the good fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus Christ and, and following him and allowing God to test and to prove and to form our hearts, what kind of fruit do you think we're going to bear? But if we live for Jesus, if we live through the power of His Holy Spirit, if we live for God and in righteousness, no matter what else, if we pass that on to our children, that they might pass it on to their children. How you live will bear fruit. And that's, that's the hope there at the end. That we will experience that crown of glory in our children and our children's children. Our ultimate crown is with the Lord. But apart from Jesus, apart from God's righteousness, apart from His Holy Spirit's guidance and power, We can do nothing. What fruit are you working towards today? What character have you cultivated and you are cultivating in your life today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we pray, Lord, that as you test our hearts, Lord, that you would find us open to you. We know that we are not perfect, that we fail, but we pray, Lord, that we would be yielded to you. That when you look in our hearts, you would see Jesus. That you would forgive us our sins. We pray, Lord, that you would be forming our hearts and our character into that which honors and glorifies you. We pray, Lord, that we would live based on you and not our own desires. And Lord, we pray that it wouldn't just be for ourselves, but that we would pass it down. That we would display righteousness so that our kids would know godliness. That they would live in it and share it with their kids. We pray, Lord, for the blessing to be able to see a generation that is once removed from us, that continues in godly ways as we did. We pray, Lord, for those in our midst today who maybe haven't believed in Jesus. Maybe they live by lies, they listen to lies. Father, we pray that you would open up their ears, that they would hear the truth. That they would desire to speak truth and to walk in the truth. And in so doing, that they would desire to walk with Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as believers to walk in the truth. To not put up with lies. To not get caught up in the, well, this is the way we have to think because this is the way everyone around us thinks. But Lord, that we would continue 
to believe in truth, to believe in you, and to live by you, no matter what may come. We pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.